Lord, we just sang prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. Uh, we also know what kind of weeks we're coming out of. We know, maybe we don't know. We might have a good sense of where our hearts are right now as we hear words like this really early on in Paul's letter. And it, Father, it can scare us because we don't know how what we just heard fits with the God that we've heard about from the Bible. It can confuse us. Uh, maybe it has no effect on us. Maybe we are the unrepentant, hard-hearted, stubborn people the passage talks about. But Father, wherever we are tonight, would you come and be who you say you are? Would you come, Lord Jesus, and be who you say you are? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. And would you do this because you love us, and would you do this because you're pleased to do these kind of things? We ask this in your name. Amen. All right, you can take a seat. Um, hey, these are jarring words. Uh, even if you were here last week, those were jarring words. Uh, if you've ever uh, read through the book of Romans, uh, we said last week, Paul is not your buddy who calls you up just to chat and like 10 minutes into the conversation, you're like, hey, what'd you call about? He's like, bam, 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 let's get on this. And so he says some pretty hard stuff really early on. Uh, but we'll kind of dive into it in a second and, and find out why he's saying this so early on, and how do we wrap our heads around this? Because even if you've spent your whole life in the church, what I just read is probably a little bit confusing. You're like, how in the world does stuff like Judgment Day and God's wrath and anger and people being judged according to their works, how does that square with everything else we've heard in the Bible? Uh, And there's a lot on the line because uh, for those of you with a very sensitive conscience, this is the kind of stuff that keeps you up at night. Because you wonder, well, do I have enough fruit if God's judging me on my works? What's going to happen? Or some of you feel like every time someone puts good news in your hand, they take some back before they leave you with that good, sweet message. And you're like, could someone please just leave me with good news, period. And so what do we do with a passage like this? Um, well, let's, let's dig into that. Spend the next 30 or so minutes uh, thinking about that. Um, I read a book recently, it's called Unchristian, and the subtitle is What what the Next Generation uh, Believes About Christianity. And these two guys, uh, they've done this with several of their books, but they basically polled you a couple of years ago, uh, people 16 to 29, and uh, they asked them all these kind of questions about what they believe about God, what their religious life is like, and this wasn't just Christians, they asked anybody, random sampling of 16 to 29 year olds in America, and uh, they, they zeroed in on a particular group, that, what they called the outsiders. And these are people who did not grow up in the church, grow up Christians, Catholic, evangelical, whatever. They, just, they were not religious people. And so they asked this group of kids um, at the time, they said, uh, when you think about Christians, what are the top ten adjectives or characteristics that you think about when you think about the Christians that you know? Okay, so the top three, I don't remember the whole top ten list. The top three, number one, is uh, my perception of Christians is that they're anti-gay, they're hypocritical, and they're judgmental. It's top three. Talk about swinging coming out of the gates. Um, and I don't think the list gets terribly much better after that. But what, what surprised me about that study wasn't that they said they think Christians are judgmental. That actually, unfortunately, did not surprise me. Maybe you've been in the church for a while. Maybe you're kind of like you've been around Christians for a while and that doesn't surprise you. 
But what surprised me is that these people were asked the top ten, and essentially the top three were all the same thing. Basically, the Christians that I know, uh, they judge people for their sexuality. Number one, the Christians that I know are hypocrites. They judge people, but they do the very same stuff. Number three, the, peop- the Christians that I know, they're judgmental about other people's lifestyles. That's what grabbed my attention about this, is when someone repeats something three times, you're like, okay, I'm getting a subtle hint here that this is what you think Christians are like. Because it's three ways of saying Christians are judgmental. Um, why? Why would people be, that was so on the forefront of their minds, such a dominant perception of us, that, that's, that was at the forefront of their mind. You say, what are Christians like? Bam, bam, bam. Well, it's powerful, and the reason they probably said those things, you know, because you've been judged, right? I've been judged. Uh, the first few weeks of school are really intimidating for this very reason. You're going into a lot of new rooms, with new people, and we're all worried, what's the judgment going to be? Uh, Am I going to measure up? Am I going to be cool enough? Um, Are these people actually going to want to talk to me after class? Is anyone going to want to get to know me, or is this just going to be like a business relationship? We'll sit together in class and then go back uh, on our merry ways after that. Maybe your touch point is you've been judged for being a Christian. Back home this summer, something your coworkers found out at some point you were a Christian and like, end of all conversations, end of you getting invited anywhere, uh, end of any social life with those people, or end of them thinking that you're intelligent, and, and, and they judged you for that. Or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe you've kind of been the person who's gone to a Bible study with Christians before, or you've come to a place like this, and people looked at you in a way that just dismissed you. Or maybe you made a comment, and they, were, they kind of condescended you, oh, thanks for that comment, now back to what we were talking about. And you just die. Because judgment, the reason judgment, when it's coming from other people, you kind of get uncoming fire from other people, the reason it's so devastating is it's kind of like murder. Because if I judge you, like let's say I see you and make a glance that you know he's just dismissed me. I'm not cool enough. I don't matter. Whatever. You feel diminished as a person, right? You die in a little way. Which is why it's so infuriating slash devastating when we're the recipients of other people uh, judging us uh, like that. And so it's, it's really bad stuff, but um, here's another question. Why does Paul start talking about this in the beginning of chapter 2? Now, this is a letter to people. They didn't have chapters and verses, so... If you're getting this letter, you don't have, oh, well, we're in chapter 2 now, new topic. It's just a letter you're reading along, you're like, dang, Paul, here's a hobby horse, it seems like. Like, why did you just switch gears, and now you're talking about judgment, judging others, like, we accuse other people of doing the very things that we're doing. Like, what happened? Why did you switch gears uh, so fast? But here's the reason why. Were you here last week? If If you were not here last week, give Romans 1 a read. Uh, or, or pull it up on your phone right now and just take, just glance. You don't have to read it, just glance. And it grabs you. And Paul was writing this letter to churchy people, like religious people, people who came to RUF for some ministry every week and they, like, they prayed, they had a cross in their home when they grew up, their parents are, are Christians, whatever. These were church people. 
And Paul is kind of reading their minds when he's writing this letter to them. Because last week he's saying, in a sense, look at all these people out there who have exchanged the true God for little trinkets, little idols. They're, it's a dislocation of worship, right? We said we all can worship about as good as a pitcher with a dislocated shoulder can pitch. We're dislocated in the place that matters most, our worship. So Paul is kind of diagnosing humanity at large, and, but he's like, he's tracking with his people, and he's like, I know where your mind's going. A lot of you are going to be thinking, yeah, 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 amen, Paul, you tell them. Oh, it's finally someone saying this stuff. Go get them. More power to you. Because my roommate is that way, or, or my high school friends, they really are that way, and I'm glad... I've been vindicated. Someone's finally calling a spade a spade and saying this is evil. And Paul is a pastor, and he loves his people, and he loves you. He actually thought a lot about you in his letters. He says frequently, uh, I'm writing these things down for the people who will come after you. Um, but Paul loves his people, and so he's, he, he's, he's guarding his flanks. And he's saying, I'm not going to be kind of laying down a diagnosis over here to show these people how desperately they need Jesus while in the back door... All these church people are walking around like thinking they're perfectly fine. And that the diagnosis, they don't have any symptoms. The diagnosis doesn't apply to them. And so Paul's kind of shifting gears and talking specifically to uh, people who are very familiar with church stuff, Christian stuff. He says Jew in here, but basically what that meant at the time is the people of God. People who did all the stuff the people of God do. Um, and he, and he's, he's taking aim at that stuff. Why? Tim Keller has a, has a little quote where he says, um, both religion and irreligion uh, are ways to reject the gospel. Or you could tweak that for our purposes here, and you could say that both religion and irreligion, both churchy stuff and party stuff, can be spiritually fatal to you. They can kill you. They can leave you powerless thinking that you're changing when nothing's happening except you're getting more hollow. Which is very counterintuitive because you, you wouldn't think that. You would think that morality, you would think that religion, whatever that means to you, you would think that that stuff would have power. You would think that it would be a good way forward that Paul would be like, hey, come down this path. But what he's saying here is both will kill you just in different ways. And so he's guarding his flanks and he's saying, hey, we need to be aware of this side and we need to be aware of that side. Um, and he's, he's not like the tolerance police. Like maybe you're a little bit frustrated by kind of how far things, uh, I don't know, just the conversation that happens in public now. It's like you're not allowed to call evil, evil. You're not allowed to call good, good. It's everybody gets to decide for themselves. And you're like, come on, like that's not common sense. Paul's not doing that. He's not saying, who are you to judge? He's not saying you're not allowed to make judgments about stuff that God has clearly said is good or bad. He's not doing that. But what he's doing, uh, what he's doing is he's actually diagnosing the judgmentalism that's kind of alive and well in our hearts. So he's saying for the people last week, you show the signs of Ebola and you need a doctor. And then he's coming back to the people who are like the nurses and the, uh, the medical helpers. And he's saying, you have the symptoms. And you need the doctor. Just as much as these people. Uh, you're in a different place. You're closer to the doctors, but you need him desperately and you need the cure. And so everybody knows, we know what it's like to be the recipients of judgment. You're old enough to 
kind of admit that you judge other people. We'll kind of get a better, a juicier picture of what that looks like in just a minute. But uh, we're kind of all on the same page. We are both victims and perpetrators when it comes to judgment. We might know what judgmentalism is, but I don't think we're really aware. I wasn't aware until studying this passage of why it's in my heart and what it means about me and God and where, what it means about where I need to grow and where I'm not, where the, where the cylinders aren't firing with the gospel, with this breakthrough message. Where am I missing it? And so Paul says three things in a sense, um, three things or three ways, uh, three reasons why we judge other people. Uh, why we're dismissive of certain people. Think about walking down I'm all or the tables you walk past at Aggie Fest or the Welcome Week. Think about the people you get most easily frustrated with, you're impatient with. Uh, those are the people that we're tempted to judge. And here's three reasons Paul says this judgmentalism is uniquely present in religious people's hearts uh, and lives. Uh, here's the first one. He says, judgment, uh, judging another person kind of whispers to me, you can be clean, Ben. So judgment promises a cleansing, kind of a self-cleansing. Here's what I mean. Um, have any of y'all ever, like, you've been painfully aware of how underdressed you are for some event. Like, maybe you went to a wedding and, like, you thought it was casual, but it turns out it was actually everybody's in a suit. Or it's a church service. Like, you're, you're at your grandparents' house, and it's their church. And you're like, I wear flip-flops and shorts at mine, but that's all I brought, and now I'm going to grandma and grandpa's church. And you walk in, and you're like petrified, and you're super self-conscious, until you see the one person in the congregation that's dressed worse than you, and you're like, sucks to be that guy, <laughs> and you're like, and you might still be a little bit self-conscious, but immediately, you're better, because he or she is worse, right? Or speeding, like, you get pulled over, uh, I won't pick on her, she's not here tonight, but one of y'all's gotten out of like eight speeding tickets, I don't know how, but it usually involves tears. But uh, speeding is another example of how it's like this comparative cleansing. It's like, yeah, I was going 10 over, but all the rest of the people were going 20 over. And so by comparison, it's kind of a way to cleanse me and to kind of make me righteous again. But here's a little bit more relevant and maybe a little bit closer to home example of this. I was in a fraternity in college um, all four and a half years of my time in college, and um, you would think, you might think that uh, being in a fraternity is a bad influence on your character and makes you make bad decisions. And that, that largely didn't happen. Um, fraternity may not have been one of the best things for me. It's, it's where I ran the fastest away from God, but it's also where God ran the fastest after me. And so I kind of had a mixed bag. It was, uh, it was a priceless place that I would not be where I am today without. And it's also a place uh, I learned... Um, how to rebel uh, a lot. But here's why the fraternity was hard for me. I lived in the house for two years, but 25 guys lived in the house. It's about 100 people in the group. No matter how bad you were, no matter how much you drank, no matter how far you pushed the sexual boundaries, no matter how little you studied, there was always somebody worse than you in the house. Uh, I studied a little bit in undergrad, um, but if I felt bad that I wasn't prepared for the test tomorrow, there's always the guy who's been on the front porch, like, drinking for two weeks straight, that you're like, well, he's in my class, too, so at least I'm, like, not him. <laughs> and then, like, I mean, there's some other ways like that, like, guys who don't sleep or whatever else, but then, um, 
in a lot of more serious places too, that's how my heart was working. I felt cleansed. I felt better. Whenever I felt shame, whenever I felt guilt, I could just look at the other guy and be like, well, I'm not him. He's a lot. I mean, these guys are, are doing this. They're drinking like four nights a week, and it's just me and my buddies just two nights a week. And like, we stop until we black out or whatever. Um, sexual boundaries, whatever else. You're just like, but these guys are doing this. They're on the far end of the spectrum, so what I'm doing is fine. Do you, see, do you see that in your own heart, though, how we attempt to cleanse ourselves by comparing ourselves to others? Do you also see what I said earlier, how judgment is murder? How do you think one of those guys would have felt if he knew, hey, you're the guy that Ben Coppich looks to to feel good about himself? Because you're so messed up, by comparison, he always feels better. This taking life, taking honor, taking dignity from but this is, that's the first thing judgment does. It whispers a lie to you that says you can be clean. Just look around you. Um, Paul talks about that in this passage. Uh, why do we have to look around us? Why do we even look to other people in our dorms or your roommates or friends you've had from high school that you still hang out with? Why do we have to compare ourselves? What's the catalyst? Well, it's, it's the shame, it's the regret, and the guilt because we do the same things they do, right? Paul says that. I think it's, is it verse 1 or 2? Paul says, uh, you who judge, don't you do the exact same things? Uh, the end of verse 1. That's why we have the catalyst to begin to look around us um, and to say, I really am better than these people. I'm clean by comparison to them. Um, the other thing that judging others does, it cleanses us, but it also lies to us and persuades us that we can escape true judgment. We can escape judgment before God. Imagine um, if, kind of picture this scenario. It's like you're in a play and you show up to rehearsal and you really want to kind of control how this play happens and you want the best part. And so you get there early and you pick up your script, but you also pick up the lead actor's script, or in this case, the judge's script. Uh, And the reason why is because you don't want to be in the presence of another judge, right? Um, Ezra, I know what you had to live by now. This is uh, the train that went by your house all the time, wherever you are. Um, it's, it's, we don't want to be in the presence of another judge, and so we kind of take up the script ourselves, and we go about our lives rendering verdicts on other people. Are you tracking with this? Is this kind of an anatomy of our heart, right? How bent they are. Paul's kind of, he's pushing the ball down the road a little bit. He's saying, you might have known... You had some tendencies to being judgmental. You might have known it sucks to be judged, but let's look into why so that we can look into what to do about it. So we judge people because we think it will make us clean. We judge people because we, we really do believe what Paul also says in here. Do you think that you will escape God's judgment at the end of verse 3? We judge others to escape the judge. We don't want to deal with him. We don't want to deal with the thought of what's God's, what are God's thoughts about me or what I've done Uh, And so we kind of obsess about our thoughts about other people and what they've done or not done. Uh, The third thing is that we judge because we don't believe God is gracious. Uh, We'll come back to these verses in a few minutes, but Paul says something astounding right in the middle here, and it's why I had Peter read that passage earlier that might have sounded crazy to you when he's talking about the earth burning up and everything. Um, But Paul says in here that God is kind, he is patient, He is forbearing, which means he puts up with a lot. And that he's for you. He's for your repentance. Uh, But the 
if we don't believe that, if God to you is a bitter, shallow, trivial judge, you will avoid him like the plague, and you yourself will become a bitter, shallow, trivial judge of everybody else. You'll assume his role. Uh, and a lot of us, uh, the reason we judge other people is because we, we believe that we live in a world where there's only judgment. We live in a world where grace is not present. We judge ourselves. We hate ourselves. We condemn ourselves, and we do it to other people too. Because we, we, we think that we live in a world that's very different than the world that God describes, which is a world he's broken into and is making all things new into. And so just to wrap all of this up in a nice little package, Paul says it's a big problem that kind of this virus, this problem is in our hearts. It damages our relationships with other people. It damages our relationship with God. Uh, and he says it's a really warped way to live because judgment says you don't matter. Judgment, judgment sees people as a threat. You're neutralized now. I've judged you. I've not honored you. You don't even exist to me. Uh, it's, it's murder in a sense. Um, and so it's obviously, it's not a way that fits with God's desires in the world uh, that he is changing. Here is the big whammy, though. And this is where we'll kind of pivot and point this plane towards the landing pad or to, towards, the, to, towards the runway. Paul's big pivot is this. And you've got to ask yourself this question. Why is he talking about this? Okay, we said earlier because people might be prone to think, yeah, you get them, Paul, and then they're judging other people. But why... In this letter, why now? Do you remember what we talked about the first week? How we said, like, all of these other stories floating around out there that you and I are tempted to live by every day. They are, they're promising you a breakthrough moment. This, this, this explosion of power that's going to push you further than anything else or anybody else has ever been able to push you. It's going to change you. going to change your relationships. Life's going to get better. The breakthrough. We said the gospel is actually the only breakthrough story that has power. It is power. So we said all the other stories, all of the other ways we think about um, getting the good life, its batteries not included. Now here's the astounding thing. Paul says religion comes with batteries not included. Paul says the law, which is good, which a lot of ink in the Bible is, is spilled saying how good uh, the law is. It shows you what love looks like. It shows you what life looks like. But even the law, as beautiful a package as it is, has stamped at the bottom, batteries not included. Which means that religion, moral effort, whatever, behavior change, it has no power. And Paul is saying the way that religious people who are kind of disconnected from God, the way that they try to bring power into religion is through judgment. It's through kind of this self-made righteousness, cleansing ourselves. And so Paul is saying that, uh, that this battery is not included. This powerlessness is actually behind a lot of this uh, stuff we've been talking about, a lot of this judgment. Here's the thing, and I won't go into this a lot because we talked about it for a long time on the first week. But Paul is, he, again, he's going back and making this distinction. Every human being was born in the age of the flesh. If you don't know what that means... It basically means born into a world that is already broken, already decaying, dying, dark, exhausting, painful, sad. And we said that Jesus parachuted into that dark, sad, broken, sharp-edged world that has ruined us to bring us into a new age, a new breakthrough, a new dawn, 
he parachutes into our darkness to bring the sunrise with him. Paul is saying that even religion is of the old age. It is passing away. It is decaying. It is dying. It is powerless. It can't change you. It can't, it can't bring you back to God. So what can? Because he seems to have taken everything off the table. When he takes even religion off the table... Paul is wanting us to abandon all of these hollow, powerless, lifeless things because he's pointing us back to the same person he's pointing us back to all along. It's Romans chapter 1, verse 16. It's the theme verse of the whole book. It's, for I'm not ashamed of the, of the gospel, for it is the power of God to save you, to rescue you, to put you back together to the way you were meant to be forever. That's why he's not ashamed He's ashamed of religion. He says it a lot of other places because it has no power to do anything for you. He's ashamed of all the other breakthrough stories because they leave you with Christmas morning with the present you always wanted and no power. No batteries, so you're like, great. This is cool for about three days and now it's a paperweight because it doesn't work. So Paul is pointing us back to Jesus. He's pointing us back to the gospel and saying, this is the only thing that I'm not ashamed of because it is the power of God to change you. It's what you're after. It's what you yearn for. It's what you were made for. So now Paul has taken the very last remaining thing off the table so that all that is left is either a full rejection of God right in the face of all the evidence or an embrace of him seeing desperately your need uh, for him. We can end with this about how to bring all of these pieces together into one place. Uh, how it, and especially if you're a Christian, you're like, Ben, I was tracking with you earlier. I, I see this judgmentalism coming out of my heart. Maybe you used to see it a lot worse than now. Uh, hey, Ben, I was tracking with you, but I'm really scared when I read uh, about a God who says he's going to judge me according to what I do, which he says in the passage, uh, renders each man according to what he's done. Ben, I was tracking with you until Paul started talking about a day of judgment where the words wrath and anger are used because that doesn't fit in with everything else you've been saying. So I get all the judgmental stuff, but what do I do with God? Am I supposed to be terrified because of this message tonight? You shouldn't be scared. You should be sobered. Because God's judgment is real, but God's grace is real. Here's how they come together. Here's how all this talk about God judging us according to our works comes together. Uh, a lot of y'all in the room went with me to uh, Fall Conference last year. We were in Colorado, up in Colorado Springs last year at Fall Conference. Uh, and to get into Colorado, you have to go through what's called the Raton Pass. Uh, the Raton Pass um, burned a couple of years ago. Huge fire up there. And uh, Wendy's smiling. You either started it or you helped put it out. So, yeah. <laughs> But I was driving up. We, like, we get closer to the Colorado border and we're starting to climb up that big hill. And, uh, and I'm looking around me and like everything you see is just stumps with little branches and it's just charred black. The, the ground is black. It was just ugly. It made you really want to get to Colorado. Because as soon as you got to Colorado, it's like the fire stopped on the state line. And it's like 14ers appear in the sky and everything. <laughs> But we're going up to Raton Pass. Now, okay, I'm going to ask you to personify yourself as a tree, to enter into this story, to get what, I, what we've been talking about, to see how the pieces come together. 
Imagine you and I are these big, towering, old, majestic, charred, burned trees. We've been around the block forever. This has been our hill forever. Um, we are taller than all the other trees. We look at all the other trees and we're like, I've got more branches than those trees. Uh, even after the fire, I'm still taller than the other trees. I'm on a better hill than the other trees. I'm much bigger and more powerful than these dinky little <coughs> saplings poking up through the charred crust below. A bunch of dead trees comparing themselves to each other to make themselves come alive again in a sense, right? Judging each other to cleanse themselves. Judging each other to bring life and power back where there is no life and power. Now imagine a, a little a farmer or like a tree guy comes in and he's, he, he, he hires his company and he says, I want you to clear cut everything. Cut down all the trees that don't have leaves, that are dead. But I want you to not even as much as step on those weak, <laughs> fragile, dinky little saplings with little tiny green leaves poking out of the, the charred ground. Save those. Said, those are my little saplings that I've planted to revegetate this place. Don't harm them. So you see the difference between the big charred trees that are all caught up in this game of judging each other, looking down at each other, even looking down at the little things that actually are alive. The difference between those trees and little saplings is what? Yeah, they might be tall, they might be big, uh, they might be strong, but they're dead. It's lifeless. There is no power in the root to do anything for the tree. The saplings, no matter how ugly, no matter how bug-ridden, no matter how fragile and small, the difference is they are alive. There are leaves. Now, are the leaves the source of life, or are the leaves the sign of life? Do those leaves, did they kind of just miraculously produce life out of the midst of a burned, charred landscape? Or are those leaves the proof, the evidence that somebody gave life to this plant? Somebody planted this. Someone made it come alive. So when God talks about the day of judgment, which the Bible talks about, Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus talks about it, the prophets, the apostles, everybody, it's, it's going to happen. There is coming judgment where God will separate. Uh, in a sense, will say, cut down what is dead and fruitless, and bare. But nobody touch the little saplings. Because I planted them. So if you see leaves, if you see evidence of life, or as Paul says here, if you see works, keep them alive. But if you see death and no evidence of life, no pulse, no leaves, no green, cut it down. Jesus says almost the exact same thing in a parable. He talks about cursing the fig tree because it has no fruit. This is how we wrap our heads around what God means when he says he's serious about justice. He's serious about judgment. He, he does render to us according. But here's the point. Don't get hung up on this. Does it mean that God is judging you because of what you do? That God is like looking at how, how the quantity of your good works, the quality? No. Is he looking for them? Yes, because they're sign, they are a sign of resurrection life. Because Jesus is powerful. And if you are connected to Jesus, if you are united to him, then you will bear fruit. It's impossible not to. It's, imp it's unthinkable. How could you be connected to a resurrected, reigning over all things Jesus 
and not show ripples of resurrection, not show a, a, an uptick in the pulse, to not have tiny little fragile green leaves. I get it. We're messed up people. We judge other people. Some of the criticism from that 87% is well-deserved. I get it that we're messy people. I'm not talking about a towering redwood. God says he is looking for signs of life, the very signs of life that he breathed into you. And so where do you go at an end of a passage like this? You go to the farmer. If you look at the landscape of your life and it's all burn and char and dark, you pray that the God who breaks into places just like that will break into your life. And you familiarize yourself enough with his character that you begin to expect that that's exactly what he does. He says he came for people. He came for dead trees to plant life, to breathe life. And if you're the Christian, maybe the Christian with the sensitive conscience, and you're like, Ben, great stuff. But I look at my, I look at my branches and what fruit is there? And you're always tempted to judge yourself. You're always tempted to say, all is lost, there's nothing on the tree, I'm dead. You've got to develop a better eye for the kinds of things that God has an eye for. God is looking for life. Uh, What do these life signs look like? I'll list you three or four and then we'll be done. These life signs look like, does your sin bother you? Does it bother you that you have a tendency to judge other people and look down on them? Are you okay with that? You kind of said this is just the way life's supposed to be. Or does it really bother you? Does it break you? Do you yearn for the resurrection power of Jesus? Do you long to see newness, green, green little life poking up through dead areas in your life, your relationships, your sexuality, your, your spiritual life? Do you long to see life break into those places? Do you long to see Jesus come? And share with you his resources. Do you see your need for grace? Does the diagnosis we talked about last week fit you? Those, that's what little green leaves on a little sapling looks like. Here's the good news. Don't leave here uh, navel-gazing, trying to find and count how many leaves. That would be a failed message. Leave here uh, obsessing on and focusing on the last part of verse 4. Do you know the reason you made it through the night last night? Do you know the reason oxygen keeps putting, uh, keeps coming into your lungs? Do you know the reason your heart keeps beating right now? Peter told you earlier when he read from 2 Peter. Why does the sun keep rising? Is it just because God established all these laws of nature and he just kind of, he's the blind clockmaker, set it to tick, 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 tick? Not so. God says he keeps raising the sun, he keeps spinning the earth, he keeps putting air in your lungs right now. For what reason? That his kindness, that his patience, that his forbearance would lead you to repentance. And so if you're concerned about how much life is actually in you, don't leave here looking just at your death. Leave here looking at a God who is committed to come to you and to grow you because he says here it's still growing season as long as the sun rises and you're awake you're awake to see it he is seeking your repentance he is seeking your life let's pray Lord Jesus we uh, this is a lot to wrap our heads around 
it's a lot to try to hold together without uh, certain things seeming to eclipse and, and undo other things that we know to be true. And so we pray that uh, you would help us, A, wrap our heads around what this uh, passage is saying to us, but also would you encourage us that you are the life giver and you come into dead, dark places, whether our whole entire lives are dead and dark or just there's strongholds, there's corners and niches and little places in our lives uh, that still reek of death, would you come into those places? Would you bring your resurrection power? Would we more and more not be ashamed of the gospel because it is power to change, power to make us right with you forever? We ask this in your name. Amen.